Hello once again, listener, and I'm delighted to welcome you to another episode of the Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology podcast in conversation with. I'm Hugh Thomas, the Deputy Editor. The feature of today's episode is the newly released Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology Commission on the Costs of Inflammatory Bowel Disease, or IBD, in high-income settings. The Commission pulls together wide global expertise in relevant disciplines, from epidemiology to clinical management to health economics, with the aim of examining the current costs of IBD care and the drivers involved in increasing economic burden and, most importantly, exploring means to deliver affordable, equitable care for patients with IBD in the future. The cost of caring for patients with IBD in high-income settings is continuing to increase as a result of a steady, compounding increase in prevalence. The chronic nature of IBD, and thus the need for long-term, often expensive treatments, and the use of more intensive disease monitoring strategies, as well as the effects of IBD on economic and social productivity. Sitting alongside the Commission is work by Rupert Banerjee and colleagues that sets out the similarities and marked differences in costs in low- and middle-income settings. Joining me in conversation today is Dr. Johan Burish, who served as Chair of the Commission. He's a gastroenterologist working out of Villawar Hospital and the Copenhagen Centre for Inflammatory Bowel Disease in Children, Adolescents and Adults in Copenhagen, Denmark. His research focuses on understanding and predicting the occurrence, disease course and prognosis of IBD, as well as the impact of novel therapies on disease course. Dr. Burish, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today and welcome to the podcast. Very happy to be here. Wonderful. Just to start us off then, I thought I could ask you to just summarize the Commission's work looking at what I think might be the most kind of fundamental question, which is what are the sources of cost in IBD, thinking most generally? Yeah, so, well, basically you can, with, with, any, with any diseases, you, you can divide it into, into what are the, the direct costs and, of course, the indirect costs. And uh, direct costs for IBD patients are primarily driven by the need for many health contacts with the hospitals, a lot of them still unplanned, so hospitalizations, of course, then also need for surgeries. And then what is um, increasing rapidly is, of course, the costs for drugs to treat these patients. And as these are lifelong diseases, medications are, well, in theory, something that patients need to take for the rest of their life. So that's, of course, a huge part. What is in fact, might be just, just as big a, a bigger part of the global, the overall cost for IBD patients are the indirect costs. And these are costs, of course, most, most typically incurred by, by absenteeism from, from work, loss of productivity uh, due to patients having flares. They impact on their social lives, their well-being. This all affects their productivity in a sort of a economic sense as well. And, um, Although this is, as I said, this might be even just as big as a parameter of costs, it might be equally, so 50% of costs of patients. It is, I mean, much less intensively studied um, compared to direct costs, which of course relates to direct costs being much easier to study. You can count the number of drugs, you can get the prescriptions collected, you can count number of surgeries. Indirect costs are much more difficult to, to measure and for some countries, it's, it's impossible. For other countries, there are possibilities to some degree. So, but that, those, are, those two are, the, are sort of the main, main uh, drivers of costs overall. And then also thinking about the kind of the absolute magnitude of IBD costs. Have you seen these change over time? And, and why might these be changing over time? Yeah, so, I mean, 
there is one, one aspect is, of course, that the number of patients is increasing. So that alone will drive costs for IBD as an, as an area within a healthcare system will drive them off. We, we have, in many countries, a stagnation or reaching a plateau in terms of incidents. In other countries and other regions, we are seeing that incidences are still going off. So the number of new patients are increasing. But at the same time, we have low mortality in these patients. I mean, this has changed if we go many decades back. There was increased mortality, but, but today... Uh, we have a, a greater influx of patients, so to say, uh, compared to an outflux. So the sum of patients is increasing, which means more patients to treat for longer times as well. They they get older. I think there was a, we, when you look at the global burden of disease study that was also published in your journal, uh, you see that the mean age in, in overall was, was about 50 years old, which means that a large portion of our patients will come with comorbidities and, and, and are older, will need to be treated for, for many, many years. So, so one aspect, of course, is the increasing number of patients. And then the other thing is, of course, the significant changes we've seen in, our, in the treatments that we have for our patients. If we go back two or three decades, most costs for IBD patients were driven by hospitalizations, emergency visits, and then surgeries. And uh, this is still the case in the very beginning of their disease, so in the first years, but then very quickly, because we have these new, and I mean, some of them are not new anymore. We have them since, since the beginning of the, of the, of the century here. That, um, but in, since with these treatments, um, the cost for medications have increased rapidly. And are now with, the, with, the, with all the cohorts that we've seen recently, we see that costs for treatments are, are, are much higher than traditionally hospitalizations and surgeries. So, so this is, and this is something that we expect will continue to, to happen. We have more and more new drugs coming to the market that are expensive. At the same time, some of the, the older drugs like at the anti-TNF uh, alpha inhibitors are, are losing their patent. We see biosimilars that are, of course, much less costly. But this again means that many more patients will be treated with it because some of the constraints we had in the beginning were of course, worries about side effects, complications, but also costs. I remember when I came into this field, starting a patient on a biological treatment was something that we had to, we had to meet on a weekly meeting and decide this, that this was the treatment where we wanted to give this patient. It was a big deal. And today it's, it's, it's not a big deal anymore. Many patients are started on biologics. So this, this counterweights a bit the reduction in prices we also use in, in, in more and more patients. Of course, also driven by our understanding of the disease that has changed, that we need to start these more advanced treatments earlier in the disease course to, to prevent complications in the long run. Absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, obviously we've introduced this concept already, the kind of the differentiation between direct and indirect costs of disease. Um, but just focusing down on the direct costs, and I know you talked about these being, you know, easier to understand and to study and to define. Um, what were the major factors that are influencing the key? direct costs. So this was a very interesting discussion point we had in the commission because obviously the costs for drugs are, are of major importance here. And, and when you start to discuss with your colleagues all around the world, I mean, what are the costs of the, the treatments that you give your patients? What do patients need to pay for themselves? What does the healthcare system pay? You realize that there is a complete lack of transparency in how these prices are set. In many countries, you cannot, you, I mean, it's impossible to know actually what 
the payers are paying for the drugs. Medical uh, companies negotiate quite differently depending on where you are uh, in the world, which means that these prices are, are differing, uh, are, are varying quite substantially all over the world. And and as and this is of course a major major point because because this is a the key driver in 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 direct costs, of course, for our patients is that these more advanced treatments are very expensive. Another uh, key driver is, of course, here that we, although we've had some of these drugs for decades now, still don't know exactly how to use them ideally, which patients should benefit from them, who should not have any of those treatments. Maybe some patients should go directly to surgery, have studies showing that, well, one example is, of course, isolated ileal Crohn's disease with short segments. Well, it might be better served with a, with a resection instead of biological therapies. We still don't know which patients to select for this. And we've seen and we discussed in the commission that probably too many patients are started on these drugs. I don't, well, I don't know what the alternative should be because we cannot tell uh, exactly I mean, how to select those patients ideally. But when we look at, at, at large cohort studies that have analyzed changes in surgeries, changes in hospitalization, some of these major outcomes over time, and then looked at how the, in, the introduction of biologics have impacted this, we, we don't see a significant change in those outcomes yet. And which would suggest that that is at least one, uh, one analysis of it, that maybe it's, it's inappropriately used in too large a portion of patients. And then, of course, the other factor is that most or all of the drugs that we have available, well, none of them are really, have really solved the problems yet. They have all a similar efficacy rate of 30, 40% out of induction. Many then will, will lose response in the subsequent years. And there's so far no, no, I mean, no game changer yet uh, in those drugs, which means patients will cycle through several biological therapies and we, we currently have no data telling us, I mean, does that, does that end up in worse outcomes than maybe previously where they would then at some point simply need to go to surgery compared to today where we might be treating them for longer time than previously? Absolutely. I mean, there's a huge amount of work here in the commission and I won't dwell on, uh, on, on some more examples there, but just one other aspect that I wanted to, to discuss on that related point was that the commission pulls out really the, the role played by inequality and access to care. Uh, and this seemed quite an interesting topic. What were the main findings there for the commission? Yeah. So this is one of the examples showing how complex this issue is with costs. And there's so many factors influencing it. And we, uh, we ended up discussing that there are, I mean, quite a, a lot of data after all, um, particularly from the US North American settings, demonstrating how depending on your socioeconomic status, how depending on your insurance plan, where you live, how close you live to university hospitals, how the availability of, of drugs, of care, or how monitoring strategies, treatment strategies, they, they differ, how this influences this, which again, by the end of it, ends up impacting the disease cause, and of course, also costs. And this is and one of the many areas that we discussed and found in this commission where we simply do not know that much. We don't know enough about this because it's, it's not a prioritized um, area. It's also difficult to measure because, again, you can look at hardcore variables such as where were they born, where were they raised, what is their income. 
But of course, there are many uh, societal um, factors and cultural factors that play in as well that are difficult to capture. But they all end up, apparently, from the data that we found, influencing healthcare-seeking behavior, but also the what is offered to those patients. Wonderful. I, I think coming on, coming on next, I mean, an important point that the Commission inevitably spends quite a substantial investment of time looking at is uh, cost-effectiveness and cost-effectiveness analyses in IBD. What are you able to summarize this for us then, the major findings of the Commission in, in that area? Yeah, so first of all, we, we, we could identify that, again, this is a, an area where we know uh, very little, in fact. Uh, there's not much data available. And the problem with the data available is that many of these cost-effective analysis, they rely on data from uh, randomized controlled trials. Uh, they, they make many of these analysis um, uh, simulations. You use different type of analysis to sort of predict uh, cost trajectories. And they rely on data that we take from randomized controlled trials. And, and randomized controlled trials are uh, probably not very suitable to sort of reflect the general population, uh, the general patient population that we see in a clinic. So you make assumptions based on patients that are much healthier, that are much younger, that haven't gotten as severe disease as those that we see in practice. This, of course, introduces uh, problems in those analysis. And then... Also, many of these cost-effectiveness studies that we found are, are not look, I mean, are, are short. The duration is not long enough. IBDs are lifelong chronic diseases. It takes years in some patients to develop complications. And doing analysis on effectiveness and cost and only looking one or two years out uh, and is, is, is probably not, again, not reflecting uh, the reality uh, good, uh, good enough to make, um, to, give, to give valid uh, results. And the, and the third point I wanted to make about this is that um, these cost-effectiveness analysis, again, uh, need to, because the data that they rely on, again, mostly come from randomized controlled trials or registries, they need to rely on outcomes that, that maybe are not uh, as patient-near as they should be. So they rely on very easy-to-measure endpoints, such as continuing a drug or stopping a drug due to lack of efficacy or surgery, again, hospitalizations factors like uh, that are easily captured, but uh, we are not able to analyze more patient-related outcomes, well-beings. How are they, are they able to, to go ahead and do, and do their job? Are they effective in job? Are they, are, they, are they able to perform the social activities that they want to do? These are, are not captured at all by this. Uh, so this, again, makes, makes these, all these cost-effectiveness uh, studies that we looked at not necessarily usable to, to make sort of for broader arguments for where, whether a drug is better than the other. And then, of course, things change quite rapidly. They are all, always already outdated once they are published. Uh, things are changing quite uh, fast in terms of prices for drugs. So one study could look at a biological therapy and finding it's not cost-effectiveness, it's not cost-effective. But as soon as prices change, it might be. Um, most of these studies have been performed prior to the biosimilars entering the markets, and we found almost no data on the neural biological therapies or small molecules, which are desperately needed. And finally, but also perhaps most importantly, what mechanisms does the Commission propose for ensuring uh, that we can make progress on this, that we can deliver high, if not better quality, 
and affordable and equitable IBD care in high-income countries in the future? Yeah, so we discuss quite a, a long list of, of different areas that's, that um, could help making IBD care affordable also in the future. And some of the highlights are looking at, for example, how patients are, are monitored today. There's a whole issue with appropriateness of monitoring patients, how often, when, and, and, and how should we monitor our patients. And there we believe that introducing more um, so modern remotely monitoring strategies using e-health, um, trying to use nurse-driven IBD clinics to sort of uh, divert the workload to other individuals in the healthcare systems could be one way where, where uh, we would be able to, to, to reduce costs in the long run. It will also work on, on the, some of the indirect costs that are caused by patients having to take time off from work and go to the hospital, go to blood samples. If a lot of this could be handled at home or, when patient, or after work when patients are, are free to do this, this will of course also help. And we also discuss new care models where you use where you integrate patients, patient preferences much more directly in, in, in the clinic to thereby involve patients in their care, increase adherence, and thereby also sort of, in, because there are data showing that this, this might be able to improve disease causes, efficacies of treatments if patients are, are more involved. And there are a lot of concepts that we know from the US where they have models for this uh, that we discuss very nicely in this. And then, of course, finally, we also discussed that um, if you could sort of go, go uh, above all this, uh, we also need to figure out how to, to predict disease causes and treatment responses much better than we do today in those patients. There's a lot of work to be done in identifying subgroup of patients that need different treatment approaches than, than others, and eventually also looking at high-risk high individuals that are at risk of developing IVD in the first place how we can help uh, and guide them to sort of uh, reduce their risk so that they might end up not even, not even developing the disease after all. Of course, this is how we are looking way into the future, but I, I think part of this commission is also to look uh, way ahead and, and, and discuss topics that are maybe not, not something that we can do tomorrow, but also something that we need to look ahead in the future for. Absolutely. And certainly there's a huge amount to, uh, to look forward to in the future. And, uh, I, I just wanted to thank you, Dr. Burge, again, for taking the time to talk to us today and giving everyone as much of a flavor as we can in the short amount of time of, this, of, of the work that the Commission has done on this, what is frankly an incredibly complex but undervalued and, and, and very important area. Well, you are welcome. Thank you for having me. You can read the Commission and the associated comment online now at thelancet.com. Thank you to Dr. Burish, and thank you for listening to this episode of the Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology podcast, In Conversation With. Remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation With wherever you usually get your podcasts.